Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan and thanks once again for joining us. And a huge thanks to our new Patreon supporters this week. We have Wayne Cross and Kimberly Seabert. Thank you so much guys. If you too would like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Seeing Red merchandise then head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash Seeing Red Podcast. This week, Mark has taken us to France to cover one of the most brutal family executions in living history. As with the Peter Falconio case that we covered recently, fear not, we are sticking to our UK roots for now at least, as the family involved are British. We all know how I feel about this, but I suppose I can let him get away with it. This is an extraordinary case, which remains unsolved to this day. A case that has seen British and French detectives investigate leads across 15 countries. A case that has shocked and perplexed in equal measure. Join us as we navigate the twists and turns that followed in the wake of this barbaric orgy of violence. Chevaline is a small village in France, just a few miles south of the Swiss border, deep in the Alps. It sits on the shores of Lake Annecy, the third largest lake in France, a lake known for its clear water and for its popularity with tourists who flock there every summer from all corners of the globe, for any flat earthers out there. Chevaline doesn't offer much in the way of local amenities, there are no bars or restaurants there, but what it lacks in the way of nightlife, it more than makes up for in rural charm. This is the kind of place where the only thing that fills the air is birdsong and the delicate scent of the flowers that grow at the side of the road. Not much happens around here, but that is part of the appeal, I guess. The peace and tranquility. Yeah, yeah, if you want to just go away and get away from it all. What a lovely place to do it. And it really is a beautiful Mm. corner of the world. But it hasn't always been peaceful and tranquil in Chevaline. When four people were murdered in a lay-by, known locally as Le Martinet, on the outskirts of the village on Wednesday the 5th of September in 2012, the community was shook to its very core. The four victims included three members of the Alhilly family, a family who had, up until this point, been enjoying a belated summer holiday, and a local French cyclist called Sylvain Mollier. The south of France had been enjoying a never-ending summer in 2012, and it was another hot and sunny day as the Al Hilly family set off from the Solitaire du Lac campsite on the shores of Lake Annecy on the afternoon of 5th of September. The family who were from Surrey were made up of Dad Saad, then aged 50, wife Iqbal, 47, and daughters Zainab, 7, and Zina, 4. Joining them for this summer vacation was Iqbal's mum, Suela Al-Alaf, who was 74 at the time. Arriving in Calais the previous Wednesday, the family had taken their time in reaching their final destination. So they had caught the ferry from Dover and had brought their car over with them, a maroon BMW estate, and their caravan, which the girls affectionately named Spotty. Deciding to make the most of their time in France, the family had stopped off at various campsites as they headed south, reaching the shores of Lake Annecy on Saturday the 1st of September. They stayed at the village camping Europa campsite for two nights before moving on to the nearby Solitaire du Lac campsite on the Monday. The family had been having a great time exploring the surrounding area, taking in the local culture whilst they basked in the balmy weather. In what would have been their last few days together, Saad had been teaching youngest daughter Zina to ride her bike. The family had holidayed in France the previous year and they loved the country, so on the Wednesday, as their holiday was drawing to a close, their thoughts must have been turning to the week ahead, 
school, work, the usual stuff that you mm. try and forget about when you're on holiday. It is rubbish, isn't it? And you're having such a good time and then you're like, ugh. But I think there are those holidays where you actually, you're kind of getting towards the end mm. and you're like, I just want to get home. Yeah, it'd be nice to be in my own bed again. And... But equally, yeah, there's lots of holidays mm. where you just think, I really don't want to go back to work. live here now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you do, you have that conversation of mm. like, yeah, I need to kind of give up the job and everything and just kind of move <laughs> over here. So we don't know exactly what the family had planned that fateful Wednesday. What we do know is that they set off from their campsite at around 2.30pm and headed west towards Chevelin, away from Lake Annecy. We know they stopped first in Dussard, a French village a few miles from where they were staying, where they posed for photographs at 3.15pm. We know this because a camera belonging to Whitbow's mother, Suela, would later be recovered from the family's BMW and the photographs were time and date stamped. So that camera was a really important mm. piece of evidence in terms of putting together a timeline. Yeah, I always find that so chilling as well. There was um, a case in America where these girls had gone hiking and they'd got really lost and then they did end up dead. And you can see like the the sort of sequence of photos like they start off just doing like happy selfies and then you can see that they're using it at night time to basically like use the flash to see what's ahead and the photos are just so chilling and they were like trying to call but there was no signal so it's literally you, when they were found well I think one of the girls was found but one of them wasn't and it was just horrendous you can see in the pictures like one of them's bashed their head and it's just like I hate this sort of thing of like they didn't know what was going to happen at that point. And it's all documented yeah. and with the benefit of, you know, knowing what actually happened. It just mm-hmm. makes those photos even more disturbing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I don't think these photographs have ever been released to the media of the Owl Hill is. Like um that. which is probably good, but that you know, from what I've heard they were posing happily yeah. in front of landmarks in Dussard, but um but yeah, they they would have been very chilling photographs mm. because essentially just half an hour later several members of that family would be dead. Yeah. After a few minutes looking around Dussard, the family clambered back into the car and headed south towards Chevelin. At around 3.35pm, they were parked up in the Le Martinet lay-by on the southern tip of the village. Now, don't be fooled by the fancy-sounding name. There was nothing fancy about that lay-by, and God only knows why the French (laughs) decided to give it a really fancy name, but it is literally just a standard lay-by on the edge of Chevelin. And whilst a lay-by is in a beautiful part of France, it is essentially on the side of a narrow road which cuts through a dense forest. So there are no views to be enjoyed from it. It's not a popular area with families devouring Mm. picnics. Um, If anything, it's more popular with hunters and hikers. And to be fair, the road doesn't even carry on much further past La Martinet. It kind of turns into a dirt track and it is only accessible to residents and forestry workers. So when you reach La Martinet, it is a bit of a dead end, no pun intended. Um, This is not somewhere you drive to on purpose. It's basically somewhere you end up Mm. by accident thinking, oh God, like we've hit a dead end. We need to turn around and go back the way we came. At around 2.30pm that same afternoon, fellow Brit Brett Martin, who had a holiday home in the area, set off for an afternoon bike ride. As he passed through Chevelin, he noticed another cyclist ahead of him, a man on a racing bike. Brett thought it unusual to see someone on a racing bike in this area. The road he and Brett were both travelling on was filled with potholes and really wasn't made for a racing bike. Brett soon put this thought to the back of his mind as he began the arduous three-mile climb up the road from the village. As he cycled, he noticed a maroon BMW pass him. Unbeknown to him, it was the Al Hilly family. 
Within minutes, their worlds would collide at La Martine, the lay-by that would bear witness to a massacre. At around 3.45pm, just seconds before he arrived at La Martine, Brett saw a motorcyclist pass him in the opposite direction, heading down the hill away from the lay-by. Speaking to the BBC in the days following the massacre, Brett described how events unfolded for him that afternoon. He said, as I approached the scene, the first thing I saw was a bike on its side. I'd seen the cyclist ahead of me much earlier, so I thought he was just having a rest. As I got a bit closer, a very young child stumbled out onto the road, and at first I thought she was just playing. She looked from a distance like she was sort of falling over, larking about like a child would. However, as I approached her, it was obvious that she was quite badly injured, and there was a lot of blood on her. I then saw the car with its engine revving and its wheels spinning. It seemed at that moment that there had been a terrible car accident. The young child Brett refers to here is seven-year-old Zainab. Brett, a former RAF pilot, could see that she had what he called a fleshy head wound, and so he began to administer basic first aid. Continuing his recollection, he went on. She was prone on the road, moaning and semi-conscious and she was lying in front of the car with its wheels spinning, so my immediate thought was that she needed to be moved in case the car lurched forward and ran her over. So I gently attended to her and moved her into a position clear of where the vehicle could possibly go, clear of the road, and I put her in the recovery position as best I could and asked her to stay there and then moved on. I mean, fair play to this guy. He's so calm with it all as well. Like yeah. He's just come across this absolute like, horrific sort of scene... So, yeah, and he's taken charge. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, Brett turned his attention to the cyclist, whose body was also lay in front of the car, some distance from his bike. Brett said, It seemed to me like he was probably dead. I couldn't feel a pulse, and the most obvious thing was the inanimate body. So I moved him away from the car. I thought it's probably a good idea because I could smell burning rubber and that sort of hot engine burning smell. At this point, Brett realised he needed to turn the engine off in case the car lurched forward uncontrollably. He went on, I needed to break the window to get in. I noticed there were some holes and I started to think, is that a bullet hole as I was breaking the window? I had my cycle gloves on, so I literally pushed the window in because it was already cracked. Brett turned the engine off and came face to face with Saad at this point, who was in the driver's seat. Taking up the story, he continues... It was immediately obvious he had been shot and there wasn't anything to be done for him. I circled around to the other side of the car to see whether anybody in the back was alive and therefore needed help. And as I looked in the back of the car, it was very obvious that the two ladies in the back were also murdered and had been shot. The older lady had been shot in the forehead and I couldn't see the face of the younger lady, but she was very evidently dead. Then I was thinking, is there a hunter or sniper type of character hiding in the trees, maybe? Maybe he was shooting from a covered position, something like that. I think that's the thing that would be freaking you out, is like, you've just found people who've clearly been shot. Yeah, like literally like, probably seconds am I, before. Am I going to be shot next, or like, is there someone waiting to get me? Like, that's really terrifying, isn't it? And he said he even thought to himself at this point, is it going to hurt when I get shot? Mm, so he was kind of convinced yeah. that was going to happen. Brett tried to call the emergency services at this point, but he couldn't get a signal. So he checked on Zainab again and set off down the hill to get help. After a couple of minutes, he came across a car. Inside was a trio of French hikers, a man and two women, looking forward to an afternoon hiking in the sunshine. Brett explained in broken French what had happened, and they drove up to the lay-by, with Brett following behind on his bike. 
When they arrived, they struggled to take in the horrific scene that presented itself. The man, a guy called Philippe, would later describe seeing a coin-sized hole in Sard's forehead. Mm. I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah. At first, he suspected Brett had something to do with this. He was English, after all, and the car full of dead people had English number plates. And in a panic, he went to punch Brett, who exclaimed in broken French, It's not me, it's not me. The man obviously believed that and he called the emergency services. An ambulance and three fire service trucks arrived, followed by several police cars. A badly injured Zainab was taken to a nearby hospital and the area was cordoned off as Brett and the French hikers were taken to the local police station to give statements. At the scene, police made the decision to wait for forensic experts to arrive from Paris before they properly examined the car. A doctor had been called to confirm the passengers were deceased, so there was no hurry now. It was really important to preserve the scene as it stood immediately after the attack. As night began to fall, officers discovered the Al-Hili family had been staying at the nearby campsite. They visited the site and spoke with fellow holidaymakers, and just before midnight they received some alarming information. The Al-Hillies had two children, not one, as had been assumed by the police up until this point. This is the bit of the whole case I think that's the most chilling for me. Yeah, I think if Mm. you know anything about the case, you'll, you'll know this bit. Horrific. So officers put an urgent call into their colleagues at the scene and eight hours after the attack, four-year-old Zena was found cowering in the rear footwell, hiding under her mother's and her grandmother's skirts. At a press conference the following day, Eric Mylord, the French prosecutor who was overseeing the investigation, said, Zena was hidden under the bodies and didn't move for the whole time. She remained beneath the skirts of her loved ones in a jumble of bags for nearly eight hours. She could not tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. She spontaneously began to smile and speak in English when the gendarme took her in his arms and pulled her out of the car. Then she was crying, where is mummy? I want my mummy. She had heard the noises, the cries, but couldn't say more. How tragic is Mm, that? It's just so sad. And then actually eight hours of her just led in a footwell. I don't think it's anyone's fault. And I'm going to come on to to what Eric Milo or my lord said sort of later on to kind of explain Mm. how that happened. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's anyone's fault. I just think, yeah, it's just so so tragic. tragic. Yeah, I think it's like completely valid. Like I would rather that the police left a crime scene for the forensic teams. Yeah. And until you know that there's another child, you you wouldn't be looking for anybody else, would you? But yeah, yeah so really ex- sad. Explaining some months later, he said, Outside, officers had one little girl. One child seat equals one child. If there had been another seat, then we might have thought differently. But nothing enabled us to think there was another child. No one knew this family. They were foreign. There was no quick way for us to establish that they had a second child. A helicopter passed over the car with a heat detector. It showed colours compatible with the dead adult's bodies relatively quickly. It did not detect a different colour that would have indicated someone being alive. Zena, although traumatised, was unharmed. In the subsequent investigation, police were able to ascertain that Saad and Iqbal had been shot four times, Suela three times, Sylvan five times, and Zainab just the once. Jeez, that is a lot of shots as well. Yeah. Four shots were fired that did not hit a human target. The dead each had clinical shots to the forehead. The vehicle itself, other than the windows, had not been shot at. 
This appeared to be a cold-blooded execution by a professional assassin. Mm. Up until this point, then, we have essentially cut from the family parking up at La Martine to Brett discovering them. What happened in the intervening minutes is subject to speculation. However, police are fairly confident of the sequence of events that unfolded. So I'm now going to take you back to that sunny afternoon. It's 3.35pm on Wednesday the 5th of September in 2012. Saad has just pulled into the lay-by. Next to him in the front passenger seat is eldest daughter Zainab. Zainab has struggled with car sickness since she was a toddler and she finds that sitting in the front helps to ease her symptoms. At least that's what she tells her dad. Wife Iqbal and mother-in-law Suela and youngest daughter Zina are all in the back seat of the car. Saad turns the engine off and he and Zainab get out of the vehicle. Police know this because they examined soil on their shoes, which was a direct match for the soil in the immediate area. We can only speculate as to why Saad pulled up into that lay-by, and why only he and Zainab got out of the car. Perhaps a little girl needed the toilet and Saad was attending to her. Perhaps sitting in the front seat hadn't eased Zainab's sickness and she was about to be sick. I don't think we'll ever know why they mm. pulled into La Martine. But it makes sense because it's, like you said, like such a dead end. So yeah. it would just be like, yeah. And the rest of the family were staying in the car. Yes, they weren't planning to stay there and have a picnic or anything. They were planning to get going straight away as well. What we do know is that as soon as Saad and Zainab got out of the vehicle, a gunman appears out of nowhere and shoots Saad. Severely injured and in a fit of blind panic, Saad shouts at Zainab to get back in the car, but before she can make the relative safety of the family's BMW, she is shot in the shoulder and falls to the ground. At this point, Sylvain Mollier, the French cyclist who had passed Brett Martin some time earlier, arrives at the scene. The gunman takes aim and fires, shooting him in the head. Saad realises the gunman is now preoccupied with the cyclist. He turns back to the car and gets into the driver's seat. As he revs the engine, he looks out of the window and notices Zainab semi-conscious on the ground. Saad now faces an agonising mm, decision. Yeah, what do you do? Does he get back out of the car and attempt to save his eldest daughter, risking his own life mm-hmm. and probably his family's, or does he leave her there and flee, thus saving the rest of the family? Yeah, it's just such an impossible choice, isn't it? And I think it probably, literally, this all happened in a handful mm-hmm. of seconds. So, you know, he wouldn't have even been thinking clearly. Yeah. He'd shouted at Zainab to get back in the car. He thought that she was. Um, he'd run to the car. He'd made it to the car. And then he's kind of revving mm-hmm. the engine and sees that she's not there. It must yeah. have just been a horrific feeling. Saad slams the vehicle into reverse, accidentally running over Sylvain Mollier. And I mean, he literally runs him over. Mm. He drives over his motionless body. The gunman fires multiple times at the car, making contact with Saad and his passengers, but unbelievably it appears at this point that Saad will make it out of that lay-by and into the safety of nearby Chevaline, where he'll be able to raise the alarm. Having reversed, Saad now slams the car into first gear. But there's a problem. It won't budge. The wheels spin and the clutch burns as acrid smoke fills the air. The car is stuck in a bank of soil and gravel. The family are now sitting ducks. Saad screams at Zena to hide under Rick Balansuela's long flowing skirts and the little girl clings to her mother's legs. The gunman now methodically takes aim at each of the occupants inside the car. Saad is first. Already critically injured from being shot in the back moments earlier, he is now shot in the head twice. 
Satisfied that Saad is now dead, the gunman moves around the vehicle taking aim at Iqbal and then Suela, shooting both in the head several times. Perhaps he hears the cyclist cry out in pain at this point, we don't know, but the gunman's attention is now drawn back to Sylvain Mollier. Miraculously, despite having already been shot and run over by Saad, Sylvain is still alive. Mm. The gunman now shoots him at close range in the head multiple times. He is left in a bloody mess. Satisfied that he is now definitely dead, the killer moves over to little Zainab, who is whimpering on the ground. At this point, he has three bullets left. But miraculously, he doesn't use any of them on Zainab. Was this a rare moment of conscience for the killer? Was he simply unable to shoot a seven-year-old child dead? Unlikely if what happens next is anything to go by, for the gunman coldly slams the butt of his gun into Zainab's head. The force is such that part of the gun's casing comes clean off and Zainab's skull is now exposed. Maybe his gun jammed, who knows, but at this point the gunman makes off on his black motorcycle, passing an oblivious Brett who is now just seconds from the scene. In the days that followed, investigators were perplexed. As far as they were concerned, this was a normal family on holiday in France. There was no reason for them to be executed in cold blood in a remote lay-by in the middle of the day. French detectives liaised with Surrey police and began to look into the family's background in the weeks that followed. Whilst the Alhillies appeared to be like any normal family on the surface, living their best middle-class life in Leafy Claygate, the epitome of suburbia, they were a little more interesting than appearances would suggest. Mm. Although he considered himself to be British, Saad was in fact born in Iraq. His parents fled the country, arriving in England when he was nine years old. He had an old brother, Zaid, who was 12 years old at the time. The two were close and the family wanted for nothing. Saad's father, Cardam, had been a successful businessman in Iraq and the family soon settled into the affluent area of Pimlico in central London. Saad was clever and worked hard at school, eventually gaining a place at Kingston University where he studied engineering. After he graduated, the family moved into the large detached house in Claygate in Surrey, the same house that Saad was living in with his family at the time of his murder. In 2002, Saad met and married Iqbal, a dentist. The two settled into a life of domestic bliss and their family was complete when Zainab and Zina arrived. Saad was described by those who knew him as a loving dad. A freelance industrial designer and an expert computer draftsman, Saad was fascinated by computers and he enjoyed taking them apart and putting them back together again. At the time of his death, he was working for SSTL, a satellite engineering firm in Guildford in Surrey. Investigators did wonder if he was a target for foreign intelligence agencies. French investigators had found important data that went well beyond anything he needed for work when they forensically examined the ten or so computers Mm -hmm. they found at his house. Was he trying to sell information to foreign powers, perhaps? Is that why he was in France in that lay-by? Was he selling information to somebody? After all, the holiday had been arranged very last minute and Zainab had been taken out of school, which was a bit unusual. Mm. 
Detectives pursued this line of inquiry thoroughly, but they did hit a dead end. Saad was just a contractor at SSTL. He was brought in to solve small problems at the firm, had no security clearance, and whilst he did have sensitive information on various computers, we don't know the exact nature of that information. It was obviously not a concern for the authorities, or substantial enough for them to pursue this as a credible line mm. of inquiry. It's such an interesting case because there's so many unknowns that things are made to sound, like can sound like a lot worse than they are like yeah a lot of lots made out about the bicycle the fact that the cyclist was on like a racing bike not yeah. a mountain bike and things like that which it is weird but he was clearly able to ride it because he'd been cycling for a while and he'd managed to get up that hill and i so... think well, yeah and he you know for all we know he did that three times a week yeah exactly um, but i think there are there are lots of coincidences mm. there are lots of weird things in this case but i think if you analyzed any case yeah, extensively gonna you're going to come up with some random yeah. stuff that you could definitely kind of go oh it's because of that mm. and the thing with his work and the security clearance is like people quite often will have security clearance for their jobs yeah that means that they might have sensitive information to you or i but to them it was something they needed for work on Tuesday. I mean, for all we know, Saad had been brought into that company to sort out a kind of pay problem and he might have had details of staff salaries on his computer and that's sensitive, but that's not something you would sell. Yeah. So you quite rightly sort of said about the cyclist Sylvain Mollier. Mm. After all, he was shot the most amount of times. Aged 45, he lived 10 miles from the Martinet and had recently become a father for the first time. Police wondered what he was doing at the lay-by. As I said earlier, it was reached by a road filled with potholes, not the sort of road you would use a racing bike on, Mm. but for all we know, he did, and he was okay with that. That's what my kind of thing is like. It's weird, but... He got there, therefore he yeah. didn't. You just so know, it was it's not possible. Like he's falling off all the time. Maybe he was just challenging himself. Exactly. If he's in that sort of mindset of like I'm going cycling in the Alps anyway. Yeah. That's not easy in the best of times. No. Detectives discovered that up until recently, Sylvan had been working at a factory in Eugene, a small town south of Lake Annecy. Nothing significant about that, you might think, but the factory was involved in producing parts for the nuclear industry. Mm. So it appeared that Saad and Sylvan had something in common. They both worked in top-secret industries. Was Sylvan the intended target? Were the Alhillis merely collateral damage? Unlikely, as we've said. Mm. And I uh, think that's just crazy, isn't yeah. it? You just wait until they'd driven off and then shoot him. Yeah, that's it. You'd have been lying in wait if you if were a you're hitman. a hitman. And also to have that many bullets available when you're expecting to find a solo cyclist. Yeah. So, so as was the case with Saad, the truth was much more boring than mm-hmm. the conspiracy theorists would have you believe. Sylvan didn't work on anything top secret at the factory, although he was like high-ish up he was a technician he wasn't making nuclear reactors using top secret patents that Mm. foreign powers would have wanted to buy he was just kind of making little widgets plastic and metal lumped together nothing special oh no it is special mark well it is but it's (laughs) not something that people would have paid money for not to kill for Although Sylvain Mollier was said to be involved in a financial dispute with his father-in-law at the time of his death, police ruled that out as a potential line of inquiry. And I think, as we've said, you know, at the end of the day, we all have some kind of shit going down at any given time. Mm -hmm. It's just that we're not murdered and people then are looking into it. Exactly. It's like the whole thing when people have affairs all the time. Yeah. But as soon as there's a case and either the victim or 
someone in the case has had an affair, it becomes so much more than it is. Well, it's and all of a sudden it's a motive. Yeah, whereas actually, if nothing had happened, their, their lives would have just carried on the same as hundreds of people every day. So Yeah. yeah. It's a bit like Joanne Lees, isn't it, with Peter mm-hmm. Falconio? You know, she slept with a guy a couple of times and then it was made out to be this big affair. Yeah. And, you know, that was her motive for killing mm-hmm. Pete. Police explored any possible links between Saad and Sylvan, but they drew a blank. It was simply fate that they would both end their lives together at La Martinet on that sunny afternoon. Police were convinced that Sylvan just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, so they now turned their attention to the crime scene. No DNA evidence was present, but one vital clue was left at the scene. The piece of the gun handle that had come off when the gunman had clubbed Zainab. Analysing this, together with the bullet casings at the scene, police were able to ascertain that the weapon the gunman had used was a Swiss 1906 7.65 calibre Luger, the exact type issued to army officers in Switzerland. The gun was over 100 years old, but the model has been described as being a bit like a Swiss watch, beautifully put together and precise. The gun was a common model, however, with more than 30,000 believed to be in existence. And whilst researching this case, I found out that in Switzerland, there's 8 million people that live there Mm. and a quarter of the population own a gun. Wow. Which I was shocked at. Yeah. I didn't think it would be that high. But you don't hear as much about like gun crime and things like that in Switzerland. No, I think it has a really low crime rate. Yeah. I wonder, it'd be really interesting to find out more about that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to make a joke about your little cheap watch that you bought on holiday that oh, time yeah. that broke after the like Rolex, a week. Yeah, yeah. I was good about that. It looked really good. It looked good, you, but then as soon as you picked it up, I'm ever going to get to a Rolex. Felt like it literally weighed like a gram. But, yeah, it did. Oh, that was such a shame. That, it just broke straight away. <laughs> do you remember that game we used to play at work sometimes on like the afternoon if we were bored? It was um, guess how much something weighs. Yeah. So we'd like be like we'd have to each guess how much like a fly weighed. Yeah. We'd then go on Google and have a look, and mm-hmm. whoever was closest one. I don't think we should tell people this because we'll sound really sad. No, I thought it was a great game. That was a brilliant game. It was a good game. It went game. on for a long time. I might have to like see if I can bring it up on the bring Facebook group or something. Yeah. So although some experts speculated at the likelihood of a hitman using such a vintage weapon, many agreed that it was actually the perfect firearm, given its prevalence in the region, making it easy for a foreign killer to obtain as soon mm. as he arrived in a country to carry out a hit. Yes, which I agree like with. people would have it already, you could get hold of it easily, and there's probably quite a lot of them anyway that are in working order, so why wouldn't, you know, it'd be, easy, it'd be hard to then find it in amongst all the others. And I think that's why the gunman just wasn't bothered about leaving evidence at the scene, because it was like, yeah, so what, you can ascertain mm-hmm. the type of weapon you use, but what's that going to tell yeah, you? Yeah, everyone's got one. Police discovered that the gun held eight bullets at a time. 21 bullets were fired in total that afternoon, so the gunman would have had to reload twice. He was obviously a good shooter, someone who knew what he was doing. And planning to reload twice as well, that shows it's not just he wasn't just there for the cyclist, This is not, in my yeah, opinion. absolutely, and this is not some kind of... Yeah, he had enough ammunition with mm. him to reload twice. This is not some bumbling killer. No. This is someone who is calm and collected mm-hmm. and able to reload whilst a car's engine is revving and people are crying in pain. Yeah. And he's able to just do that calmly and walk around the vehicle mm-hmm. and shoot them. 17 shots hit targets. When some shots were fired, the car would have been moving. Police remain convinced this was the work, as I said, really, as a of a highly experienced professional, mm. whether that be a hitman or a former soldier. 
but why and who I hear you cry. Mm, you know what? I'm pretty sure you know my opinions on this case, so I'm Do I? I? You think it's the... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll come on to that a bit later on, because I have a slightly different theory. Okay, interesting. Which I'm going to come on to as well. Mm. So before we look at the person police eventually arrested for this crime, the person Bethan thinks is responsible, a man who was, I have to say, later released without charge due to a lack of hard evidence. But Doesn't a, mean he didn't do it. Yeah, though. but a man who <laughs> remains a person of significant mm. interest for the police. Um, we're going to explore one more theory. Actually, two, okay. um, but one first. So, was the gunman? <laughs> well, yeah, because you can't do two at the same <laughs> no. time. Was the gunman a deranged individual looking for any target mm. to satisfy his desire to kill? A lone psychopath, perhaps? A hunter who wanted to feel what it was like to kill a defenceless family? I think that's interesting, but I think you, the killer, probably shut would up, have Bethan. killed. The, shut up. Probably would have killed the little girl. Then I don't think you just. But maybe he's gun jammed. Maybe, yeah. That seems like an unusual kind of idea, though. Well, prosecutor Eric Milo thinks along the same lines Mm. as you, so he agrees. He doesn't believe in the motiveless murder theory, but I think otherwise. We we know you enjoy a motiveless murder. I love a motiveless murder. So you may remember, listeners, that we explored Mm. this theory in episode four of this series when we looked at the motiveless murder of Stuart Ludlam. We know there are deranged people out there whose only motive is to kill for the sake mm-hmm. of it, to know what it feels like, to feel the thrill of getting away with the ultimate crime. I personally think it's a credible theory, um, and for libel reasons, this is like part two of my other theory. I'm not going to say who I think could have actually been responsible for this motiveless murder. Okay, But why? I reckon you all know, because I, I don't want to name anyone. I think you can give your opinion i think that it's not libelous for you to just say that this is something that i don't think you would i think if you just say that you feel like it's it's your opinion that this is a similar type of crime if that's what you're getting at i don't think that that you can be you're not saying it's for definite obviously i've got my Mm. opinion on who i think okay fine i'll say i really really don't think i really think it's extremely unlikely that this is a credible theory and it's true but i've always been a little bit suspicious of brett martin Really? So he lived um, nearby. He yeah. arrived first on the scene. He has a background in the armed forces, mm-hmm. in the RAF. I don't think you're alone in this. I've definitely okay. heard of him as being a, a suspect. But it, the timeline timeline just seems a little bit. But we only tight. really, from what I, from the research I've conducted, mm. which isn't as thorough as I would have liked, even though I read a book and spent hours and hours mm-hmm. on this. Um, you know, I, from what I've read, yeah, it's probably a bit limited. But I think we only have his word to go on the timeline yeah. on some of it when he arrived. That is true, and the obviously the motorbike was never um, found, or nobody ever no. necessarily came forward. So he says there was a motorbike. We only, I think, only have his word for that. I might be completely wrong. Maybe someone saw a motorbike later on. That's it, and that's why we need to be careful with what we say because I've. It is an interesting one. I think it's an interesting theory. I think it's unlikely. Mm. But when you see Brett interviewed on TV, he is a very calm and collected guy. Yeah, and I was saying, wasn't I? Like, he's just got on the scene and just calmly dealt with it. But then, is that his military training? He comes across yeah, the scene. Yeah, and... and again, I think it's another one of those things. It's like, well, yeah, it's easy for us to kind of say, mm. well, potentially it could have been him. Yeah. Um, but it could have been loads of different things that the we can discount. The way you, like, started saying it and you were like, oh, I don't know if I should say it. I thought you were going to say something really stupid, like, 
I don't know, like Kenneth Noy or someone. I thought you were going to say something stupid oh, like that. Oh, don't mention that. him again because he's been released from prison soon. Wow, well, And possibly. we've mentioned him in season one quite a bit. Yeah, and I we don't mentioned think he's happy him. with us. I don't think he even listens to I think he's mark. coming for us. For you, maybe. You're first. You're first. Hmm. But I just, or the way you were like making like that face and like laughing and thinking that I'd find it quite entertaining. I thought you were going to say someone stupid like that. But, no. But no, I think he is like definitely credible as a potential killer. However, I just think that the police will have investigated him very thoroughly. He's the first person on scene. He's the only witness to what he came across and smashing the car window open to see what was going on and turning off the engine. I just think... Yeah, the police will have found out if he had any sort of background. I do and agree. they'd know if he had I do that agree. weapon. I love a conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. and that's why I've been drawn to it. And I, I thought this initially, years ago, Yeah, and there's still a tiny bit of suspicion, but mm-hmm. I, I really don't think it was. And I really feel for him, because what he discovered that day yeah. will live with him forever. And that might be why he's so calm and cool in interviews, because... He was in perhaps in shock of what he'd seen. It's not some. Yeah. I mean, he was military, though, so perhaps he was able to compartmentalise what he'd seen. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Interesting theory, though. There are a couple of other theories. One, um, I'm just going to very briefly kind of talk about, mm. but um, some people have kind of speculated as to whether Saad had actually annihilated his family by mm-hmm. hiring a hitman himself. So yeah. it's a bit of a kind of um, weird way to go about it. But we do see, uh, you know, patriarchs mm-hmm. and families, uh, you know, assassinate their entire yeah. family. And that could be an elaborate way of achieving that. I'm really sorry to kind of say that because I don't want to mm. bring his reputation into... Uh, you know, the firing line, so to speak. But, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of mention it because it is, people have speculated and I, I really don't think so. I just think that this is a ridiculous way to do it, whereas you, he could have, if that was the case, driven off the side of a cliff. Yeah, there's loads he could have done. Anything do else, it. so, yeah. yeah, clearly not. But I think it's an interesting one that the police will have had to have looked into. So our final theory, the most credible one, mm. brings us back to the Alhili family themselves and police uncovered a family dispute at the core of which lay a motive as old as time itself. Money, money, money. Money, money, money. Mm, yeah. When Saad's father Cardam died in 2011, he was a wealthy man. His estate was worth around £2 million and Saad discovered his brother Zaid had been attempting to get the lion's share for himself, even though his father's intention was for his sons to benefit equally. Mm -hmm. The brothers lived in the family home in Claygate in Surrey, which had been left to Zaid and Saad after their mother had died in 2002. Zaid continued to live there even after Saad had got married and you sort of get the impression that it was this kind of stubbornness. Mm -hmm. We own this house equally just because you're getting married and then you're having a family. Why should I move out? Um, You know, and I don't think Saad could afford to buy him out. Mm -hmm. So I think Zaid was quite stubborn just saying I'm going to continue to live there. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, in those circumstances, over the years, the brothers' relationship deteriorated significantly. I think this is my worst bit about my opinion on this case, because I would love to feel like actually family's better than that and family's more important than that. But Yeah, but we know that families argue and this kind of stuff goes down all the time. And living in a home with your whole family and then the uncle who's just always there, that's going to be awkward, or being the uncle and feeling like, well, that family's all living in my house. Like, from both sides, there's going to be that awkwardness. Or looking at your brother, looking at Saad and Saad and thinking, 
He's got a wife. He's got mm-hmm. a family. There could be jealousy involved. Yeah, there could be jealousy involved. So in the weeks before that fateful trip to France in the summer of 2012, as the country was basking in the honour of hosting the Summer Olympics, Saad had uncovered more damning evidence which pointed the finger firmly at his brother's allegedly fraudulent activities. He was being, like, to go back to how I used to say it, such a naughty boy. Yeah. He was really... Naughty. Saad discovered that Zaid had gotten Cardam to sign a blank will shortly before he died. Mm. Saad had found the will and noticed that everything was to be left to Zaid. After Saad found the will, he began investigating further. You'd do it properly as well, wouldn't you? You would just put everything to your name. Yeah, you'd like... What an idiot. You'd put like, oh, you know, after a dispute with my son, Saad, yeah. I'm only leaving him a quarter share or exactly. something. Exactly. Just greed is the is the biggest thing that people just make stupid decisions and stupid yeah. mistakes. Cardam had owned a number of properties and had cash stashed in several banks at the time of his death. Had Zaid been accessing his father's money? Had he yep. already transferred properties that his father owned into his own name? Was Saad about to uncover more damning information that would potentially land his brother in prison? My opinion, yep. The brothers continued to live together as their relationship deteriorated even further. By now, they were only communicating through solicitors, and Cardam's estate had been frozen pending a full legal investigation. Mm. Can you imagine living with your brother in the same house, only communicating through lawyers? Yeah, it's just horrendous. So Zay did eventually move out, and Saad continued to gather information on his brother, and even said to a friend that he was shocked at what he'd discovered. Saad changed the locks on the Claygate house after Zaid moved out and even got CCTV installed. He even ordered a taser. He clearly feared for his family and his safety at this point. Yeah. In 1988, so I'm going right back now, Cardam had deposited 600 grand into an account in Geneva. He'd hardly touched it since then. However, a year before he died, the Swiss bank got a request from England, not Spain, where Cardam was living at the time, for two cards to enable ATM withdrawals from the account. The bank noticed that the signature didn't match that of the account holder and rang Cardam to validate the request. He denied sending the request and Swiss investigators subsequently found out that it was Said who had falsified his father's signature with the intention of obtaining his money fraudulently. Mm. Investigators were convinced Said had been stealing from his father, both while he was alive and after his death in 2011. Saad, who was holidaying just 25 miles from the bank in Geneva, had allegedly called them two days before his death to make an appointment to discuss his late father's account. Did he inform Zaid of this in a heated discussion? Was he about to discover that the money had gone? Did Zaid act swiftly to avoid this from happening? Detectives believe this to be the case. Yeah, I think is why it links in with why the little girl was... Um, not necessarily killed as well. Potentially. It kind of, to me, that sits a bit like an uncle. She's not necessarily a part of this. Yeah, and she's a child, you know. But she also still was there, so she had to be, you know, silenced or something. So police had a motive, they just didn't have any proof. Obviously, Zaid has denied having anything to do with the murders and has refused to be interviewed in France, saying he doesn't trust the French authorities, even claiming that they're racist. Zaid was arrested in 2013 before being bailed, but the charges were subsequently dropped due to a lack of evidence, as I said earlier. Mm. 
French investigators say they are committed to solving this case, but the only credible suspect is Zaid. They have been quoted as saying, we could bring him before the courts tomorrow, but there is just not enough evidence to convict him. He would be found not guilty. Well, it's fair enough though, isn't it? It's all just circumstantial yeah. evidence at the moment. And and there's a lot we still don't know. We don't know if all the money in that Swiss bank account had mm-hmm. been drained. Yeah. It could have been by him. Mm-hmm. And that is a real motive that uh, Saad was about to uncover that. Yeah. And he had to be assassinated. And, Definitely. you know, Zaid could have gone to prison. So, yeah, for, you know, for certainly for a year or two after the deaths, mm-hmm. there was an active fraud investigation yeah. into Zaid. And that meant that when he's given interviews previously, he's not really been able to talk much about that part of, yeah. of it. And I think that can sometimes make people look more guilty when they refuse to speak about things, yeah. when actually legally they're not allowed to speak about it or they can't because it would affect an ongoing investigation. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I do think it's it's his family has been killed. And even though there was a disagreement to me, but then again, it's me with my nice romantic ideals of the world, but... I think you'd be like, you know what, we were having this disagreement, but I'm really upset that my family's gone and I want to make some sort of statement and I want to have interviews and try and find the real killer. And that's why, for me, it sits really badly with me that he just doesn't and mm. he's not been on any of the programmes, any documentaries, like, where he's actually spoken and become a part yeah, of the Yeah, he's been quite actively talking. He just... There's a lot he can't talk about, yeah. I suppose. So the story doesn't end here, though, because... There was a random development which came to light in 2014. Saad's wife Iqbal had previously lived in the US and police found that she'd had a secret husband over Mm -hmm. there. A man she had not spoken to for 12 years at the time of her death. A man who was found dead in his car on the exact same day as her. How weird is that? Yeah. He was aged 60 at the time and authorities concluded that he died of a heart attack. But Iqbal's time in the US remains a bit of a mystery. Mm. Was she involved in something she shouldn't have been involved in when she lived there? Was she the intended target and her ex-husband had to be silenced too? I I think her heart attack's quite... I think he would have just been shot if there was a link. But it's it's always a really interesting coincidence. What a coincidence. Though. Yeah. What a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, they would both be found dead. Mm. In their cars, you know, four or five thousand miles apart, a few hours apart on the same day. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's so many theories with this, but I'm kind of never thought to say it, but I'm kind of dumb with the theories. I think we know what Mm. the most credible theory is here. It's so interesting because I remember this case being in the news and it was just like for weeks. It was we don't know what the hell happened here. Like what? It's just a family yeah, it was just, just barbaric. It was hell? like, what the hell has gone down yeah. here? And why do we not... How can a family be annihilated, uh, you know, in a lay-by, in a beautiful part of the world, mm-hmm. on the continent, and someone's got away with it? It was just you know weird. Nothing, yeah. So I wanted to end today's story by reflecting on the two innocent victims who did make it out alive that day, Zainab and her younger sister, Zina. Following their ordeal, the two girls spent months under the protection of social services before going to live with their mother's sister, which I thought was so sad. Mm. You know, they would have been in a foster home, uh, you know, with a foster family for months after this terrible tragedy. They're not allowed to see Uncle Zaid, and according to an excellent book I read on this case, The Perfect Crime, by award-winning journalist and author Tom Parry, there have been rumours of their aunt's desire to take them to Iraq to live. The sisters are said to have police protection and it is likely that their names have now been changed to protect them. I hope they have. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there is also an injunction preventing the media from disclosing mm-hmm. any information about them now Good. that might uncover their whereabouts. And I think it's unlikely that they were even allowed to return to the Claygate home in Surrey, even yeah. briefly to get their stuff um, or say goodbye to their school friends. Mm. It was just like, you know, their life had, had moved yeah. to another part of the country immediately after this happened. Because if you think about it, there is a killer out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Zainab or Zena could in time remember what happened Uh, you know they're absolutely traumatized but it could come back to them and Mm -hmm. they could have vital evidence or maybe some dna evidence will come to light and they will have to testify in court so this is a tragic case obviously because of the murders yes but also because of the everlasting effects on those two girls it is not known whether Zainab was brain damaged in the attack or whether Zena will ever get over the trauma of clinging to her dead mother's legs for eight hours while she feared for her life. Prosecutor Eric Milo said Zena had blocked out the events. However, the fear, terror, gunfire and the sound of her father's screaming still haunted her. Mm. So what do you think of this brutal case? It's been a tough one, that's for sure. But please get in touch with us in all yeah. of the usual ways. Did you know about the case before? What were your theories? Have they changed at all? Come chat to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or send us an email. You know the drill now, guys, so And don't forget, if you want to support the show on Patreon, Mm -hmm. then you can just Google Patreon Seeing Red and you'll find our page. We've got loads of exclusive merchandise which Mm -hmm. we send out to our patrons and there is bonus content on there now as well. There is. Thanks for listening, guys. See you soon. Bye. Mm -hmm.